Content note, this episode of So Many Books, So Little Time does have a reference to religion or religious quote, which might be um, difficult for some folks to process. However, it doesn't hit you over the head with it. But still, in case there's uh, a need to prepare oneself. Hi, folks. This is Rue. And Dave. And welcome to So Many Books, So Little Time. Today, we continue with A Wrinkle in Time by Madeleine Lang with... Chapter 4, The Black Thing I looked at the book earlier because I was like, how's this spelled? I just had a, an interest. I'm like, yeah, I, look, your guess is it's in mine. Probably better because you, Langle. Seem to, Langle. you, you seem to not butcher other languages like no, I No, I'm, I'm, I'm completely butchering her name. I, I, I struggle with that one because it's in my um, pronunciation difficulty niche. Because anything that is a g and a l sound when they're too close together for me, my brain goes, nope. And it's it's a French name, right? La Engle. La because, Engle. because then there's that weird thing La where Angle. La Angle. Um, I, I know that a lot of the time you don't pronounce the last letter of a French word. Uh, just, yeah, no, I, I'm sorry to all our French speakers or our francophones. I find it really hard. But, but um, here, here's yes. the other thing. I mean, you, you're a lot... So you speak three languages, right? I speak English, German, and I do speak, well, speak is being generous, but I understand Farsi. I okay. can kind of butcher it. Um, now, I, now, last week yeah. you talked about like the difficulty you had to earn, learn English from scratch once you moved here. Well, but, um, no, not here. It was when I moved to Germany, I got oh. thrown into from English speaking. into. So my first language is Farsi, actually. Okay. So I learned Farsi first, then I learned English. I learned bits of like some words oh, of German so, here and there growing up. Even so the language then. you got thrown into was German. Okay, I, yes. I misunderstood. So I, yeah, no, I jumped into German after living in Australia for a few years. Well, because um, and that was um, hell. When I was editing the episode and I reheard that conversation we had, I'm like, but I. Think we became friends not long after you moved no, here. No, no, and your no, no, English no. was pretty this is, damn no, good. No, no, no. You see, you you saw me the second time I moved to Australia. Ah, <laughs> I've had I've had a bit of a ping pong uh, childhood. But, um, but, um, but yes, the, the the reason I brought that up is, yeah. um, you know, I've attempted to learn multiple languages over the years, uh, mainly. Uh, Japanese, Spanish, and as of last year, Mandarin. And, you know, I have problems with pronunciation with each of those attempts. And it's that thing where I can't remember where I learned it from, but, you know, each language has very specific sounds associated with it that a lot yeah. of other languages don't share. So when you grow up learning as other languages as a native language, your mouth kind of forms into what you, it needs to be yeah. to make all those sounds. So if you're trying to learn another language that has 
uh, sounds that your mouth is not used to making, it's not that you can't learn how to make those sounds, but it's always kind of an extra hurdle you have to overcome. Yeah, you have to train it. You have to train up more pronunciation, and it's it can be tricky. So, I did learn French for like six months at some stage in in. A long, long time ago. Look, I, um, I, I learned... And I learned, also learned Latin a long, long time ago. But look, it's too long. I learned Indonesian in grade five. And the only thing I remember is how to say my name is David. Yeah. Look, I never formally learned Japanese, but I picked up little bits and pieces. And no, not just oh. through anime. And, and in grade eight, we did... Because the language class got split. So I did two terms of German, two terms of Japanese. Yeah. And I can remember certain German words, but... We learned a couple Beatles songs in German. So yes. to this day, it's been a long time since eighth grade, but I can still remember Siliptig ya 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 Siliptig ya. Oh, yeah. and come give me deine hand. Yeah, the Beatles in German is a, is a thing. It, it is a thing. But, yes. but it, it, it yeah. just shows you some of those uh, tricks that they use to get you to learn certain things that they do kind of get stuck in there. I mean, for years, a party trick of mine was to, I could, well, I can still do it to say the 50 states of America in alphabetical order, because in grade one, we got taught it as a song. And then the teacher said, anyone who memorizes this by tomorrow will give you a prize. So I spent that evening kind of repeating the song to myself and it stuck. Because also, yeah. you know, when you're young, your brains are malleable. And when you do things, they stick. So there's a point, actually, on the malleable brains. Um, apparently, your malleability of your brain does not stop. Yeah, no, no, I've heard that too. You just have to keep keep doing it, keep practicing it, keep pushing it. it may, maybe it's, uh, it's, le- le- it's less, less malleable. time. It's, it's, yes, it is less malleable in terms of it takes longer to get to a state of change. But you can, no matter how old you are, you can change. And now, for the cheap, cheap price of fourteen, not no, a joke, you can invest in our series of brain yoga. Now, um, brain yoga. I'm sure that's a thing. I'm sorry, copyright. Downward dog. <laughs> Think low. Think low. No. Well, you know, when when I was talking um, last week about when I do those Sudoku puzzles, and I'm I always feel like I'm at the edge of my capability in solving them. It really does feel like I'm exercising my brain. Well, it like is. That. It is. Yeah. It's your neural pathways going, hello, I, I'm a bit rusty here. Thank you so much for making me work. It's a, it also f- feels like it's like a, a rat in a maze trying to find the cheese. So it's like the answer is somewhere here. I've just got to find the way to the next yeah. step. Pretty much. Pretty much. But yes. Um, so so to last episode, we had a few situations arise. Yeah, we, we uh, Calvin met Mrs. Murray. Uh, Calvin got uh, to pull some of the sadness and frustration out of Meg while he found out about her father. Hmm. Um, he learned why Meg has trouble in school and how she is actually, she's kind of like Charles Wallace in that uh, no one gives her the credit she's due, but she doesn't believe she's worth it herself. Yeah, she has a lot of self-worth issues and also has a bit of a heavily mathematical science bend to her brain mm. as opposed to maybe expression in terms of the arts, which is it's a bit of a, uh, it's a stereotype, but at the same time, it's okay. Um, you, can, you can have both. Both are possible. But we're also, we met Mrs. Who, Mrs. What's It, and the disembodied voice that appears to be M- Mrs. Witch. 
Mrs. Witch. Yes, and 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 we 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 got to know a little bit more about the affectations of uh, Mrs. Watson, Mrs. Who. In the meantime, the fact that Mrs. Mrs. Uh, Witch's um, affectation is just not to be corporeal is an interesting choice. <laughs> That's Steve. He chooses not to be corporeal. Uh, such a is it, what's it uh, the expression when someone's just a little uh, uh, kooky, not kooky, eccentric. Like, yeah, little eccentric. Oh, she's so quirky with her <laughs> disembodiedness. It's <laughs> like, okay. Choosing not to manifest in our reality. I know. It's like, um, I'm too tired to become a body. So I'm just going to have to deal with my voice and this shimmering mirage of color. Oh, isn't what? that the dream? I know. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very Star Trek episode. But but also, you know, we learned that, uh, you know, offhand comment that Mrs. Who might be a few billion years old. <laughs> yes. So b- b- Mrs. Who seems to be older than Mrs. Watson by a few billion years. By a paltry few billion years, apparently. <laughs> hey, so. well, well, you know, it's that thing where um, actually I was talking to my mom about this because uh, we met up for lunch today. I forgot how we got on topic, but... Oh, we were talking about how quickly time goes. And I, I posited that I'd read the last couple of years that mm. the reason when you get older, time seems to go faster is because you're having less new experiences. Like you, your brain kinds of memory kinds to latch on to when you do something new. So obviously when you're young, you know, almost everything you do is new and you kind yeah. of, it feels like everything's lasting forever. And then like we're stereotyping here, but you know, you you get you have a nine to five Monday to Friday job. You get a family, and suddenly every day becomes like the last. And before you know it, twenty years have blinked in an instant. Yeah, that's that's about right. That sounds about right. So I so if it. you extrapolate that further, you know uh, what's a few billion years if you just keep going along the same track? <laughs> well, in terms of the universe's age as well, it's mm. it's it's reasonable. But yes, so we shall continue. I believe um, that's what's going to happen. Unless you have any more reflections you'd like to share. I reflect yes, that I want to see what's going to happen in this chapter. Okay, that's the reflection it is. Chapter 4, The Black Thing The trees were lashed into a violent frenzy. Meg screamed and clutched at Calvin, and Mrs. Witch's authoritative voice called out, Quiet, child! Did a shadow fall across the moon, or did the moon simply go out, extinguished as abruptly and completely as a candle? There was still the sound of leaves, a terrified, terrifying rushing. All light was gone. Darkness was complete. Suddenly the wind was gone, and all sound. Meg felt that Calvin was being torn from her. When she reached for him, her fingers touched nothing. She screamed out, Charles! And whether it was to help him or for him to help her, she did not know. The word was flung back down her throat and she choked on it. She was completely alone. She had lost the protection of Calvin's hand. Charles was nowhere, either to save or to turn to. She was alone in a fragment of nothingness. No light, no sound, no feeling. Where was her body? She tried to move in her panic, but there was nothing to move. Just as light and sound had vanished, she was gone too. The corporeal Meg simply was not. Then she felt her limbs again. Her legs and arms were tingling faintly, as though they had been asleep. 
She blinked her eyes rapidly, but though she herself was somehow back, nothing else was. It was not as simple as darkness or absence of light. Darkness has a tangible quality. It can be moved through and felt. In darkness, you can bark your shins. The world of things still exists around you. She was lost in a horrifying void. It was the same way with the silence. This was more than silence. A deaf person can feel vibrations. Here, there was nothing to feel. Suddenly, she was aware of her heart beating rapidly within the cage of her ribs. Had it stopped before? Would it made it start again? The tingling in her arms and legs grew stronger, and suddenly she felt movement. This movement, she felt, must be the turning of the earth, rotating on its axis, travelling its elliptic course about the sun. And this feeling of moving with the earth was somewhat like the feeling of being in the ocean, out in the ocean beyond this rising and falling of the breakers, lying on the moving water, pulsing gently with the swells, and feeling the gentle, inexorable tug of the moon. I am asleep. I am dreaming, she thought. I am having a nightmare. I want to wake up. Let me wake up. Well, Charles Wallace's voice said, that was quite a trip. I do think you might have warned us. Light began to pulse and quiver. Meg blinked and shoved shakily at her glasses. And there was Charles Wallace, standing indignantly in front of her, his hands on his hips. Meg, he shouted, Calvin, where are you? She saw Charles. She heard him. But she could not go to him. She could not shove through the strange, trembling light to meet him. Calvin's voice came as though it were pushing through a cloud. Well, just give me time, will you? I'm older than you are. Meg gasped. It wasn't that Calvin wasn't there and then that he was. It wasn't that part of him came first and then the rest of him followed, like a hand and then an arm, an eye and then a nose. It was a sort of shimmering, a looking at Calvin through water, through smoke, through fire, and then there he was, solid and reassuring. Meg! Charles Wallace's voice came. Meg, Calvin, where's Meg? I'm right here, she tried to say, but her voice seemed to be caught at its source. Meg, Calvin cried, and he turned around, looking about wildly. Mrs. Witch, you haven't left Meg behind, have you? Charles Wallace shouted. If you've hurt Meg, any of you, Calvin started, but suddenly Meg felt a violent push and a shattering as though she'd been thrust through a wall of glass. Oh, there you are, Charles Wallace said, and rushed over to her and hugged her. But where am I? Meg asked breathlessly, relieved to hear that her voice was now coming out of her in more or less a normal way. She looked around rather wildly. They were standing in a sunlit field, and the air about them was moving with the delicious fragrance that comes only on the rarest of spring days, when the sun's touch is gentle and the apple blossoms are just beginning to unfold. She pushed her glasses up on her nose to reassure herself that what she was seeing was real. They had left the silver glint of a biting autumn evening, and now around them everything was golden with light. The grasses of the field were a tender new green, and scattered about there were tiny multicolored flowers. Meg turned slowly to face a mountain reaching so high into the sky that its peak was lost in a crown of puffy white clouds. From the trees at the base of the mountain came a sudden singing of birds. 
There was an air of such ineffable peace and joy all around her that her heart's wild thumping slowed. When shall we three meet again, in thunder, lightning, or in rain? came Mrs. Who's voice. Suddenly the three of them were there, Mrs. Watsit with her pink stole askew, Mrs. Who with her spectacles gleaming, and Mrs. Witch still little more than a shimmer. Delicate, multicoloured butterflies were fluttering about them, as though in greeting. Mrs. Watsit and Mrs. Who began to giggle, and they giggled until it seemed that whatever their private joke was, they would fall down with all the wild fun of it. The shimmer seemed to be laughing too. It became vaguely darker and more solid, and then there appeared a figure in a black robe, and a black peaked hat, beady eyes and a beaked nose, and long grey hair. One bony claw clutched a broomstick. "'Well, just to keep you girls happy,' the strange voice said, and Mrs. Watsit and Mrs. Who fell into each other's arms in gales of laughter. "'If you ladies have had your fun, I think you should tell Calvin and Meg a little more about all this,' Charles Wallace said coldly. "'You scared Meg half out of her wits, whisking her off this way without any warning?' "'Fixerunt animi raro et perpauca loquentis,' Mrs. Who intoned. Horace, to action little, less to words inclined. Mrs. Who, I wish you'd stop quoting. Charles Wallace sounded very annoyed. Mrs. Watsit adjusted her stall. But she finds it so difficult to verbalize, Charles dear. It helps her if she can quote, instead of working out words of her own. And we mustn't lose our sense of humor, Mrs. Witch said. The only way to cope with something deadly serious is to try to treat it a little lightly. But that's going to be hard for Meg, Mrs. Watsit said. It's going to be hard for her to realize that we are serious. What about me? Calvin asked. The life of your father isn't at stake, Mrs. Watsit told him. But what about Charles Wallace then? Mrs. Watsit's unoiled door hinge voice was warm with affection and pride. Charles Wallace knows. Charles Wallace knows that it's far more than just the life of his father. Charles Wallace knows what's at stake. Cannot read the Greek because it is actually in Greek letters, so not reading it. <clears throat> but remember, Mrs. Hu said, Euripides, nothing is hopeless. We must hope for everything. Where are we now and how did we get here? Calvin asked. Uriel, the third planet of the star Malak, in the spiral nebula Messier 101. This I am supposed to believe, Calvin asked indignantly. As you like, Mrs. Witch said coldly. For some reason, Meg felt that Mrs. Witch, despite her looks and ephemeral broomstick, was someone in whom one could put complete trust. It doesn't seem any more peculiar than anything else that's happened. Well, then someone just tell me how we got here. Calvin's voice was still angry, and his freckles seemed to stand out on his face. Even travelling at the speed of light, it would take us years and years to get here. Oh, we don't travel at the speed of anything, Mrs. Watson explained earnestly. We tesser, or you might say we wrinkle. Clear as mud, Calvin said. Tesser, Meg thought. Could that have anything to do with Mother's Tesseract? She was about to ask when Mrs. Witch started to speak, and one did not interrupt when Mrs. Witch was speaking. Mrs. Watsit is young and naive. 
She keeps thinking she can explain things in words, Mrs. Hu says. Qui plus c'est, plus c'était. French, you know, the more a man knows, the less he talks. But she has to use words from Meg and Calvin, Charles reminded Mrs. Hu. If you brought them along, they have a right to know what's going on. Meg went up to Mrs. Witch. In the intensity of her question, she had forgotten all about the tesseract. Is my father here? Mrs. Witch shook her head. Not here, Meg. Let Mrs. Watson explain. She is young, and the language of words is easier for her than it is for Mrs. Who and me. We stopped here, Mrs. Watson explained, more or less to catch our breaths, and to give you a chance to know what you're up against. But what about father? Meg asked. Is he all right? For the moment, love, yes. He is one of the reasons we're here. But you see, he's only one. Well, where is he? Please take me to him. We can't, not yet, Charles said. You have to be patient, Meg. But I'm not patient, Meg cried passionately. I've never been patient. Mrs. Who's glasses shone at her gently. If you want to help your father, you must learn patience. Vitam impendere vero. To stake one's life for the truth. That is what we must do. That is what your father is doing, Mrs. Watsit nodded, her voice like Mrs. Who's, very serious, very solemn. Then she smiled her radiant smile. Now, why don't you three children wander around and Charles can explain things a little? You're perfectly safe on Uriel, that's why we stopped here to rest. But aren't you coming with us? Meg asked fearfully. There was a silence for a moment. Then Mrs. Witch raised her authoritative hand. Show them, she said to Mrs. Watsit, and at something in her voice, Meg felt prickles of apprehension. Now? Mrs. Watsit asked, her creaky voice rising to a squeak. Whatever it was Mrs. Witch wanted them to see, it was something that made Mrs. Watsit uncomfortable too. Now, Mrs. Witch said, they may as well know. Should... Should I change? Mrs. Watsit asked. Better. I hope it won't upset the children too much, Mrs. Watsit murmured as though to herself. Should I change too? Mrs. Who asked. Oh, but I've had fun in these clothes. But I'll have to admit, Mrs. Watsit is the best at it. Das Werk lobt den Meister. German. The work proves the craftsman. Shall I transform now too? Mrs. Witch shook her head. Not yet. Not here. You may wait. Now, don't be frightened, loves, Mrs. Watsit said. Her plump little body began to shimmer, to quiver, to shift. The wild colors of her clothes became muted, whitened. The pudding bag shape stretched, lengthened, merged. And suddenly, before the children, was a creature more beautiful than any Meg had even imagined. And the beauty lay in far more than the outward description. Outwardly, Mrs. Watsit was surely no longer a Mrs. Watsit. She was a marble-white body with powerful flanks, something like a horse, but at the same time completely unlike a horse, for from the magnificently modelled back sprang a nobly formed torso, arms, and a head resembling a man's, but a man with a perfection of dignity and virtue, an exaltation of joy such as Meg had never before seen. No, she thought, it's not like a Greek centaur, 
Not in the least. From the shoulders, slowly, a pair of wings unfolded. Wings made of rainbows, of light upon water, of poetry. Calvin fell to his knees. No, Mrs. Watsit said, though her voice was not Mrs. Watsit's voice. Not to me, Calvin. Never to me. Stand up. Carry them, Mrs. Witch commanded. With a gesture both delicate and strong, Mrs. Watsit knelt in front of the children, stretching her wings wide and holding them steady but quivering. On to my back now, the new voice said. The children took hesitant steps towards the beautiful creature. But what do we call you now? Calvin asked. Oh, my dears, came the new voice, a rich voice with the warmth of a woodwind, the clarity of a trumpet, the mystery of an English horn. You can't go on changing my name every time I metamorphose, and I've had such pleasure being Mrs. Watsit. I think you'd better keep to that. She? He? It? Smiled at them, and the radiance of the smile was as tangible as a soft breeze, as directly warming as the rays of the sun. Come, Charles Wallace clambered up. Meg and Calvin followed him, Meg sitting between the two boys. A tremor went through the great wings, and then Mrs. Watsit lifted, and they were moving through the air. Meg soon found that there was no need to cling to Charles Wallace or Calvin. The great creature's flight was serenely smooth. The boys were eagerly looking around to the landscape. Look, Charles Wallace pointed, the mountains are so tall that you can't see where they end. Meg looked upward, and indeed the mountains seemed to be reaching into infinity. They left the fertile fields and flew across a great plateau of granite-like rock shaped into enormous monoliths. These had a definite rhythmic form, but they were not statues. They were like nothing Meg had ever seen before, and she wondered if they had been made by wind and weather by the formation of the earth, or if they were a creation of beings like the one on which she rode. They left the great granite plain and flew over a garden even more beautiful than anything in a dream. In it were gathered many of the creatures like the one Mrs. Watsit had become, some lying upon the flowers, some swimming in a broad crystal river that flowed through the garden, some flying in what Meg was sure must be a kind of dance, moving in and out above the trees. They were making music, music that came not only from their throats, but from the movement of their great wings as well. What are they singing? Meg asked excitedly. Mrs. Watsit shook her beautiful head. It won't go into your words. I can't possibly transfer it to your words. Are you getting any of it, Charles? Charles Wallace sat very still on the broad back, on his face an intently listening look, the look he had when he delved into Meg or his mother. A little, just a very little, but I think I could get more in time. Yes, you could learn it, Charles, but there isn't time. We can only stay here long enough to rest up and make a few preparations. Meg hardly listened to her. I want to know what they're singing. I want to know what it means. Try, Charles, Mrs. Watson urged. Try to translate. You can let yourself go now. You don't have to hold back. But I can't, Charles Wallace cried in an anguished voice. I don't know enough. Not yet. Then try to work with me, and I'll see if I can't verbalize it a little for them. Charles Wallace got his look of probing, of listening. I know that look, Meg thought suddenly. Now I think I know what it means. 
because I've had it in myself sometimes doing math with father when a problem is just about to become clear. Mrs. Watsit seemed to be listening to Charles's thoughts. Well, yes, that's an idea. I can try. Too bad you don't really know it, so you can give it to me direct, Charles. It's so much more work this way. Don't be lazy, Charles said. Mrs. Watsit did not take offence. She explained, Oh, it's my favourite kind of work, Charles. That's why they chose me to go along, even though I am so much younger. It's my one real talent. But it takes a tremendous amount of energy, and we're going to need every ounce of energy for what's ahead of us. But I'll try. For Calvin and Meg, I'll try. She was silent. The great wings almost stopped moving. Only a delicate stirring seemed to keep them aloft. Listen, then, Mrs. Watsit said. The resonant voice rose, and the words seemed to be all around them, and Meg felt that she could almost reach out and touch them. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift their voice, let the inhabitants of the rock sing, let them shout from the top of the mountain, let them give glory unto the Lord. So, alien creatures on a planet far, far, far away. Yep. Throughout her entire body, Meg felt a pulse of joy, such as she had never known before. Calvin's hands reached out. He did not clasp her hand in his, but moved his fingers so that they were barely touching hers. But joy flowed through them, back and forth between them, around them and about them and inside them. When Mrs. Watsit sighed, it seemed completely incomprehensible that through this bliss could come the faintest whisper of doubt. We must go now, children. Mrs. Watsit's voice was deep with sadness, and Meg could not understand. Raising her head, Mrs. Watsit gave a call that seemed to be a command, and one of the creatures above the trees nearest them raised its head to listen, and then flew off, picked three flowers from a tree growing near the river, and brought them over. Each of you take one, Mrs. Watsit said. I'll tell you how to use them later. As Meg took her flowers, she realized that it was not a single blossom, but hundreds of tiny flowerets, forming a kind of hollow bell. Where are we going? Calvin asked. Up. The wings moved steadily, swiftly. The garden was left behind, the stretch of granite, the mighty shapes, and then Mrs. Watsit was flying upward, climbing steadily up, up, Below them the trees of the mountain dwindled and became sparse, were replaced by bushes and then small dry grasses, and then vegetation ceased entirely, and there were only rocks, points, and peaks of rock, sharp and dangerous. Hold on tight, Mrs. Watsit said. Don't slip. Meg felt Calvin's arms circle her waist in a secure hold. Still they moved upward. Now they were in clouds. They could see nothing but drifting whiteness, and the moisture clung to them, and condensed in icy droplets. As Meg shivered, Calvin's grip tightened. In front of her, Charles Wallace sat quietly. Once he turned just long enough to give her a swift glance of tenderness and concern. But Meg felt, as each moment passed, that he was growing further and further away, that he was becoming less and less her adored baby brother, and more and more one with whatever kind of being Mrs. Watsit, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch in actuality were. Abruptly they burst out of the clouds into a shaft of light, 
Below them there were still rocks. Above them the rocks continued to reach up into the sky. But now, though it seemed miles upward, Meg could see where the mountain at last came to an end. Mrs. Watsit continued to climb, her wings straining a little. Meg felt her heart racing. Cold sweat began to gather on her face, and her lips felt as though they were turning blue. She began to gasp. All right, children, use your flowers now, Mrs. Watsit said. The atmosphere will continue to get thinner from now on. Hold the flowers up to your face and breathe through them, and they will give you enough oxygen. It won't be as much as you're used to, but it will be enough. Meg had almost forgotten the flowers and was grateful to realize that she was still clasping them, that she hadn't let them fall from her fingers. She pressed her face into the blossoms and breathed deeply. Calvin still held her with one arm, but he too held the flowers to his face. Charles Wallace moved the hand with flowers slowly, almost as though he were in a dream. Mrs. Watsit's wings strained against the thinness of the atmosphere. The summit was only a little way above them, and then they were there. Mrs. Watsit came to rest on a small plateau of smooth silvery rock. There ahead of them was a great white disk. One of Uriel's moons, Mrs. Watsit told them, her mighty voice faintly breathless. Oh, it's beautiful, Meg cried, it's beautiful. The silver light from the enormous moon poured over them, blending with the golden quality of the day, flowing over the children, over Mrs. Watsit, over the mountain peak. Now we will turn around, Mrs. Watsit said, and at the quality of her voice, Meg was afraid again. But when they turned, she saw nothing. Ahead of them was a thin, clear blue of sky, below them rocks thrusting out of the shifting seas of white clouds. Now we will wait, Mrs. Watsit said, for sunset and moonset. Almost as she spoke, the light began to deepen, to darken. I want to see the moon set, Charles Wallace said. No, child, do not turn around, any of you. Face out toward the dark. What I have to show you will be more visible then. Look ahead, straight ahead, as far as you can possibly look. Meg's eyes ached from the strain of looking and seeing nothing. Then, above the clouds which encircled the mountain, she seemed to see a shadow, a faint thing, of darkness, so far off that she was scarcely sure she was really seeing it. Charles Wallace said, What's that? That sort of shadow out there, Calvin gestured. What is it? I don't like it. Watch, Mrs. Watsit commanded. It was a shadow, nothing but a shadow. It was not even as tangible as a cloud. Was it cast by something, or was it a thing in itself? The sky darkened, the gold left the light, and they were surrounded by blue. Blue deepening until, where there had been nothing but the evening sky, there was now a faint pulse of a star, and then another, and another, and another. There were more stars than Meg had ever seen before. The atmosphere is so thin here, Mrs. Watsit said, as though in answer to her unasked question, that it does not obscure your vision as it would at home. Now look, look straight ahead. Meg looked. The dark shadow was still there. It had not lessened or dispersed with the coming of night, and where the shadow was, the stars were not visible. 
What could there be about a shadow that was so terrible that she knew that there had never been before or ever would again? Anything that would chill her with a fear that was beyond shuddering, beyond crying or screaming, beyond the possibility of comfort. Meg's hand holding the blossom slowly dropped, and it seemed as though a knife gashed through her lungs. She gasped, but there was no air for her to breathe. Darkness glazed her eyes and mind, but as she started to fall into unconsciousness, her head dropped down into the flowers which she was still clutching, and as she inhaled the fragrance of their purity, her mind and body revived, and she sat up again. The shadow was still there, dark and dreadful. Calvin held her hand strongly in his, but she felt neither strength nor reassurance in his touch. Beside her, a tremor went through Charles Wallace, but he sat very still. He shouldn't be seeing this, Meg thought. This is too much, so... He shouldn't be seeing this, Meg thought. This is too much for so little a boy, no matter how different and extraordinary a little boy. Calvin turned, rejecting the dark thing that blotted out the light of the stars. Make it go away, Mrs. Watsit, he whispered. Make it go away, it's evil. Slowly the great creature turned around, so that the shadow was behind them, so that they only saw the stars unobscured, the soft throb of starlight on the mountain, the descending circle of the great moon swiftly slipping over the horizon. Then, without a word from Mrs. Watsit, they were travelling downward, down, down. When they reached the corona of clouds, Mrs. Watsit said, You can breathe without the flowers now, my children. Silence again, not a word. It was as though the shadow had somehow reached out with its dark power and touched them so that they were incapable of speech. When they got back to the flowery field, bathed now in starlight and moonlight from another, smaller, yellower, rising moon, a little of the tenseness went out of their bodies, and they realized that the body of the beautiful creature on which they rode had been as rigid as theirs. With a graceful gesture, it dropped to the ground and folded its great wings. Charles Wallace was the first to slide off. Mrs. Who? Mrs. Which? he called, and there was an immediate quivering in the air. Mrs. Who's familiar glasses gleamed at them. Mrs. Which appeared too, but as she had told the children, it was difficult for her to materialize completely, and though there was the robe and peaked hat, Meg could look through them to mountain and stars. She slid off Mrs. Watsit's back and walked rather unsteadily after the long ride over to Mrs. Witch. That dark thing we saw, she said, is that what my father is fighting? Well, as mentioned before, the biblical stuff does come up as references, and it, like it's it's relevant to how she's framed it, hmm. but it's not. I don't know. It's it's like it's the idea that 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 they are joyous and they're uh, the joyous creatures, and they're expressing their their joy at existing and 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 you know sharing that with the world. So it's not like the over the top um, the heart cell. The heart cell is not going on here, which is which hmm. is good, which is what we like. You know, because there are beautiful quotes in the Bible, or even all the the Torah, the Bible. Various scriptures have beautiful um, language in them and expressions and concepts. So, yeah, I think she uses it not too bluntly. <laughs> well, there there was a hard sell for uh, how disturbed the characters were by the dark thing. Yeah. So the dark dark thing, whatever it was, was not allowing the light of the stars to come through. Hmm. 
So the dark thing is literally the title of the chapter, and we know nothing other than it's the dark thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot did happen in that chapter. They are in another solar system. Galaxy. Yeah. Completely galaxy. different galaxy. They they are far far away from home. Far 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 far. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and you would have heard the tesser part of that, the wrinkle part of that. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, actually, very funnily enough, I've come across that theory before. The idea that you know, actually, it might have been Red Dwarf. The idea that yeah. The speed of light is too slow. So what we've done, we've created a way to, you know, fold the universe between two points like a piece of paper so you can travel yep. right to it. And well, the Tesseract, the next chapter, chapter five, is literally about the Tesseract. So it's probably we're going to have their explanation, but that's exactly it. So you've got this idea of that they've traveled without touching the speed of like speed is not an issue here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um I do like Futurama's explanation about that. It goes, well, yeah, you can't. Well, they do make a joke that you can't go faster than the speed of light. That's why scientists increased the speed of light, like thousand years <laughs> in the future. But, but apparently, the way their ship works is it stays completely still and it just rotates the universe around it till it gets to where it needs to be. Well, yeah, but yeah. So there's, there's, uh, we got to know um, a little ver- a version of Mrs. What's it. Well, she Where, she turns out to be a Watsit. Well, she metamorphosed. As to whether that is her actual, actual figure, that is another discussion. Mm. Because they saw similar creatures to her playing around in, in the garden, right? Whether mm. she is one of them or she's, a, she's emulating them because that way she doesn't stand out. Like, it's not clarified. Well, and I, I guess she needed to be one to show them what the dark thing was. Yeah. Although she did communicate with the creatures mm. because they got the flowers for her. Yeah, and she, with with some effort and at Charles Wallace's behest, she translated part of what they were singing. Yeah, and assisted with, his, with Charles Wallace's assistance. So whatever is happening there, it's interesting because Meg suddenly saw something in her brother that she sees in herself. Mm-hmm. It's like, wait, I know that expression. I've had that on my face when, we, when we're about to solve a maths question. Yeah. And then suddenly, oh, now I end maybe getting more and more that understanding of why she's not one thing and not the other. Well, also, it kind of got to a scary thing where um, she said, looking at him, she saw less her baby brother and more whatever these other three yeah, creatures so, were. So something about her brother is that there's more about her brother that it then meets the eye and she knows that and she recognizes that and it is also a bit yeah it is scary it is scary i i don't know like how far the three sequels to this book go into the future but i could definitely see the end of this book being basically you know we want you to join the avengers initiative charles wallace <laughs> look he's four um <laughs> It's four human years, and they've got like they're a billion years or so, apparently. So look, but, it gets but, a few billion. Know, he he seems to be like you know, he's able to keep up with them. Yeah, to to, to so it does. Uh, that's the impression we are getting right now. It's interesting how Calvin just keeps is is so conscious of making sure that Meg feels safe and comforted. Hmm. Whereas he's also freaked out. 
Yeah, uh, he even straight up uh, called the dark thing evil. He's, he's, whatever it is, he's able to recognize stuff, but he still was doing his best to keep Meg assured. And isn't it weird, isn't it weird also that um, when he took longer to pop into the void, his explanation was, well, I am older. I think it was more that he should stop being so impatient. <laughs> he was trying to tell tell Charles Wallace of like, oh, mind your manners. I am older. <laughs> Behave. Well, and um, was it Mrs. Either Mrs. Witch or Mrs. What's it told Meg she has to be patient? She's like, I've never been patient. Well, yeah, she's trying to. She said it also to to um, the Charles Wallace told her. I think Charles. I can't remember. But yeah, telling her to be patient. She's like, but I'm not patient. My nature is not to be patient. She's like, well, you need to develop it. You need to work on it. Which brings us to this whole concept of growth and development. And yeah, it's it's a thing. So it does seem to be a theme in this thing. Well, it is a children's book, so adolescence book, that's a thing. But this idea of encouraging someone, yeah, okay, it's hard. But to just, like, you have to work on it. Because in order to have an effect or an impact... We need to develop certain qualities in ourselves. And yeah, like her mom's been telling her, be patient. Things will work mm. out, you know. Although, yeah, um, while it, it, like, like everything else, patience is, you know, we say patience is a virtue, but it's also a skill that can be cultivated. But it's a quality. It's for, a quality. But yeah. what I was going to say for a child, it is exceptionally difficult. Well, I think for um, adolescents particularly because everything is changing and there's shift and their brains are changing and the environment, the way they, where they sit in terms of social order, in terms of where they are, um, how they are treated by society, the assumptions that are made about adolescents. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't help. It doesn't really, it's not super generative towards a patient mindset. <laughs> It's not that easy to develop patience when you constantly feel like the world is out to get you because they look down at you. So, yeah, that's not going to help. But, yeah. So, any thoughts? Any more thoughts? It's a lot that happened. I mean, uh, we've learned that the story is more than just saving um, their father. Yes. Uh, the dark thing, whatever it is, it, my guess would be antagonist of whatever is going on. And well, you said the whole thing that for for Meg, they say, well, she knows that her father, it's her father's at stake. Calvin, it's not about their father, his father. And then with Charles Wallace, how Charles Wallace, Charles Wallace understands it's more than his father Mm. that's at stake. And that's interesting because for Meg, her father is the motive is being pointed out as the motivating factor. Mm. But for Charles, they're expecting it to be a much broader kind of scope. And I'm just going to guess it now that the motivation for Calvin is just to see that Meg's all right. I think so, too. I think that that like that's that's what they haven't mentioned that. But I would say his actions throughout the entire chapter do indicate that. Right. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yes, that is that is chapter four uh, in terms of the dark thing. Yeah, we're about a third through the book now. Yes, it's not a it's not a particularly long book. Hmm. It's, it's no not, catch twenty two. It's no catch twenty two. I will not do this to you. Um, <laughs> I can only apologize. It's okay. You didn't write it, um, but yeah, it's also a good. It's a good book. There. Yeah. Hmm. Um, 
But yeah, it's 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 the good thing about children's books; they tend to be a bit shorter than usual. Well, I, I, I do recall Anne was uh, lengthy. Well, yeah, not all of them, but yeah, some some are a bit shorter. But there's uh, it's been so, so we can hear we heard we know they're having a bit of a pit stop, yes, mm. but also kind of being given a hint that something is going on. And um, I also like the idea that um, Mrs. Butts can uh, metamorphose, but if Mrs. Who did it, it would be too much for the children. Yeah, interesting that. Also, and also she's needed to. Apparently, she's like not yet. And um, she's uh, how to put this. One of her quotes for the first time was not in uh, Roman letters. So, <laughs> so yeah, it was I, no, it I, was in Greek. I was like, I yeah. can't read Greek, so sorry. Well, and in my version on my Kindle, like I, it was pretty much the first line after I turned the page. Right, the size of those Greek letters were tiny; like I couldn't even see them. Uh, yeah, no, yes, yeah, it was it was reduced font size. I'm like, um. A, it's small. B, it's Greek. I cannot read that. I'm sorry. It's all it's Greek to me. Literally. 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 And not just Greek, but considering the quote, I'm guessing ancient Greek. Yeah, no. it. Yes. I would say yes. Well, Euripides, so yes, older, older Greek. <laughs> Euripides trousers, Euripides trousers. That's terrible. Um, yes. So um, yeah, so that that was the thing, and and next chapter, as I said, is chapter five, the tesseract. So we're going to see a bit more about this. Um, I mean, the last the last question that's being posed is that dark thing we saw. Meg asking that dark thing we saw is that what my father is fighting? And so we will find out more. Dark thing? Any theories? Any theories? Any ideas? Well, if the U.S. government are fighting it, it must be communism. <laughs> Well, it's, it is set in the '60s, and I mean, yeah, there's there's a big thing about this book. So, folks, be aware that this book technically has a bit of an anti-communist bend to it, but you can choose to interpret it away if that is not your liking. I personally have no inclination towards any of the existing ideologies, and my ideologies are probably influenced by a whole bunch of different things. I, I, I believe people are more valuable than profit, though, so yay. Um, yeah. <laughs> don't know, take that as you will, but yeah. With a PH or an F. Yeah, so the, 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 cha the challenge over here is that bearing in mind that this is a book that was written in the uh, 60s or published in the 60s written in the 50s probably or yeah so mm. it was written and published and then released in the 60s and so it had to eh, as to whether it was the author's intent or whether there was some pressure as well who knows I, I'm sure well who knows someone probably knows and there's probably something out there that explains it but look, overall, I'm treating this as a children's book because it's a children's book. That's how I'm, I'm and I'm dismissing there any propaganda that is being promoted either way. See, I was just making an offhand joke. But the fact that you've kind of talked at length about this after the joke, plus last week you mentioned that this is one of the most banned books out there. Now I'm starting to the wheels are turning in my head. So I, I, Except I'm gonna... it's, it's not that obvious. It's not actually that obvious, but there is a bit of that. 
going on in the background because of course as you you joke because the u.s government is is fighting against it well yeah it was that time of uh, humanity Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's it's interesting it's curious as to why it is banned because the most banned book as to why it's banned why is it the most banned book that is going to be for our last episode if we don't pick up why along the way (laughs) it's like oh yeah i see why it was banned i nice (laughs) Well, my, my joke answer right now is throughout all the positive values we've seen so far, it teaches children to grow and think to, for themselves. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So. We'll wrap up then. Yes. Yes. And not discussing communism and propaganda and bad books because. That, so next week, <laughs> we hope you join us in a ring, with a wrinkle in time. And this does not. Have, has not left a wrinkle in your plan uh, uh, God, yeah, to do so please uh, join us next week for uh, Wrinkle in Time Chapter 5 The Tesseract the music at the top of the podcast is by Jeff Dana a score that was composed for the 2003 teleplay of A Wrinkle in Time and the music at the end of the podcast is I Am The Slime by Frank Zappa you can catch me on Twitter at Rue McMoo I'm over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. We have a Facebook page and a Twitter account for the podcast. It is at SMBSLT podcast. And if you would like to email us, it is SMBSLT podcast at gmail.com. We appreciate your feedback. We would love some more feedback from you. Uh, Mm. Tell us what you think of the book. Tell us what you think of our discussions. Uh, If you have any suggestions for books you'd like us to cover in the future we will take them under advisement even if you just want to say hi we're open to that yeah. too and, and of it, course yeah. if you listen to us on any platform that allows you to rate and review the podcast we would appreciate that as well and until next time enjoy mm. uh yeah uh, enjoy your reading stay safe and we'll see you next episode bye